Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Ephesians 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this he ascended... What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ." There is so much in there, but let's let's just go back really quickly. Verse 1 through 6, we, we've entered this section where Paul's starting to talk about our walk, how we take all the things that God has given us through Christ and through his grace and walk them out. And it's through, first of all, the unity we're not here alone we are we are joined with christ we have christ in us we are in christ christ is in us goes both ways but then we also have a unity of the spirit with other believers to be honest with you there's where the rub comes is you know well we, we we have two problems, and, and let me just, this isn't in my notes, but I think I know where it is. Go back to um, Job chapter 42. The first six verses, Job is answering the Lord, and, and God replies in verse 7 and replies to Job's friends or more more appropriately, Job's tormentors. Verse 7, it says, And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Timonite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. That of the two greatest problems I see is, first of all, Christians, and it's a shame because it's done in ignorance primarily. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. We always quote that first part of the verse. We never quote the rest of the verse. Because you have rejected knowledge. It's amazing to me the number of people, as you were saying about Mark Twain 
you know, it's, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't know that worry me. It's the parts of the Bible I do know that worry me. But I have had quoted to me so many things. My, my all-time favorite was, you know, the Bible clearly teaches and says that God helps those that help themselves. And the first time someone told me that, I didn't have enough Bible knowledge to say, no, it doesn't. I actually did go to my pastor and, and say, you know, somebody told me this. Is that in the Bible? And I was like, no, it's not. And it's not biblical. But people believe stuff like that. And, and, and because of that, we, we take what should be a unity between us and God and they, they just do as, as Job's friends did. They speak ill of the Lord. They put off on, on God all kinds of things. You know, the, old, the, the, the classic statement that, you know, insurance companies, anything that can't be attributed to direct human actions is an act of God. Well, more, more accurately described, it would be an act of the enemy or an act of Satan or an act or, or a, a fruit of the fact that this world is fallen and has the curse of the fall on the earth. The, it, just because something happens does not will or does not mean it is the will of God. It says, rejoice always, for this is the will of God for you. And, it, and basically it says rejoice in, in, in all of your circumstances, for this is the will of God for you. And I've had people tell me, see, we're supposed to rejoice because everything that comes our way, it's been filtered through the fingertips of God. And that's God's will for our lives. And it's like, no, you're missing the point. The point is, even in the midst of adversity, you're still supposed to rejoice because rejoicing in the midst of adversity is the will of God for you. It's not the actions or what's happening in our world, but even here in, in, in Ephesians, people, just as Job's friends did, they speak ill of God. You know, well, God put this cancer on me because somehow he's going to get glory out of it. No, he didn't. <laughs> he doesn't make, he doesn't, he doesn't put sickness on people because Jesus paid the price for our sickness and our sin. He wouldn't put sickness on you any more than he would tell you you need to sin. Paul addressed that in, in the book of Romans. Should we, you know, if, if, if God's grace is shown up in, in forgiving our sins, then we should sin more so that God's grace can be glorified more. And the Roberts translation of that is, are you stupid? I mean, Paul reacts really strongly to that. But then the other thing is, and, and this is the second problem I, I see with the church, with us, is we get out of the unity. We, we break the unity between us and the Father as far as our, our fellowship with him because we don't understand what the word says and we don't understand who God is. We, we, we attribute things to God that are not God's doing. But then we also refuse to walk in love towards other believers. We get offended over the least. It, it just it, it, it shocks me, the stuff people get offended over. 
It shocks me sometimes the things I get offended over. Uh, it's one of the reasons that I, I am, I'm getting to a point in my life where I have, and, and this, you don't, you all don't know me well enough to know, I have been a news hound my entire life. When they came, came up with 24-hour news, I was in heaven. And my wife could tell you, I was addicted. I could sit and watch, because the first one was CNN, and I would sit and, and could watch CNN 24 hours a day. I would get sleep deprived because I wanted to know what was going on everywhere. And I got to the point now where I refuse to turn the news on. I don't want to know. I just, if it's important, God will show me. God will tell me what I need to do about things. And I don't care what happened to some tourist in Lower Slobovia. It may be a tragedy, but do I have to be aware of it? No. But it engages my emotions, and it engages me. And, of course, modern newscasters, you know, they, 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 they play to everyone's emotion. But my point is, I find it at times incredible when I step back and look at it, I pick up other people's offenses. I get mad at Joe Blow here because he said something nasty to this tourist in Lower Slobovia, and we, they ended up with a riot over it. And when I step back and think about it, I, what does it matter to me what those people do? Now, on, a, on an absolute sense, I don't want anybody to be hurt. I don't want anybody to be offended. But at the same time, I don't need to get in the middle of that. I don't need to occupy my mind with that. But we will pick up, and even closer to home, somebody tells you, this is what happened. We're tempted. Proverbs says, you know, when this, again, this is the Roberts translation. When you hear, a, 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 you hear somebody's side of a story, you're tempted to think, that's actually what happened. I can guarantee you 100% of the time, that's never what happened. Because there is another side, and if you listen to the other person, they're going to have a whole different take on it. In fact, I remember a situation where two, two believers had a conflict. Both came to the pastor. Each told the pastor their side of it. <laughs> and he came to me and said, I, I need some help. And I said, well, what, what's going on? And he gave me the situation. I said, well, what do you need help with? He said, when I listen to them, I'm thinking they couldn't have been in the same room. Their stories aren't even remotely close to matching. Well, why is that? Because we all have a different perspective. But both of these people, once they got offended, their positions got hardened and they broke their fellowship. And that is huge for us as Christians. And in fact, I really do think that's one of the reason that Paul deals very first thing when he says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling, he immediately goes into the unity that we have to preserve. Because first of all, our unity between us and God, if you think God's mad at you, you're going to have a hard time believing anything having faith for anything if you think God's angry with you. And then if you are in, in strife with other people constantly, 
God has a hard time bringing blessings into your life because you cut them off because you're constantly attacking um, other believers with your words or your deeds or whatever. And, and, and it all comes down to, at least at this point, verse 7, he's saying we, we are all unified. That's a fact. In Christ, we're unified. Whether you get along with somebody or not, it doesn't matter. And that's Paul's point. So what if you all look different? So what if you worship different? So what if you have a huge difference of opinion? I, I, I get so cheesed at people that want to, Christians that want to separate over politics. I have very strong political views, but when it comes right down to it, I, I the, who was it? Um, I guess Truman was still president when I was born. So I've, I have been under however many presidents that is. I, I haven't counted them. 10, 12. None of them have ever called me and asked my advice. From Truman all the way through Trump. They don't care. Nobody's interested in my opinion about how to run the country. So what do I, what does it matter that I have to persuade people to believe like I do? Neither, most of the people that I run with, nobody's asking their opinion either. Now, it doesn't mean that we, we can't have opinions and we can't share opinions, but we can't differ and split over those kinds of things. But even with that said, and this is part of, of the, the difference here, we are all unified, but verse 7 starts with that little three-letter word, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, we all have the same measure of, of, of Christ's grace, as far as the new birth, God gave us saving grace to get us into the kingdom, to make us united with Christ, to raise us up to seat, sit us uh, with him in heavenly places. But he also gives us gifts as far as our function in the body. And I, I, I've argued with people because people will tell me, well, I don't, I don't have any gifts. It's like, wait, wait, wait a minute, verse 1 of chapter 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. If you're called, Paul says this later on, whom God calls, he equips. Well, if he's called you, He's given you the grace and the gift that goes with that grace to fulfill your calling. So that grace will give you abilities to do a function. And it can be all the way from just as simple as being in the ministry of helps. I, you can always tell someone who, who has a real calling, and there is a calling to the Ministry of Helps. It doesn't matter what job comes up, they're in helping. In fact, the big, the big temptation for pastors is to work to death those that have that gift of helping. 
because they're always ready to volunteer. And sometimes you need to say, well, thank you, but you need to rest for a while. Take a few weeks off. You don't have to be involved in this particular deal. Just come and receive for a while. Because people that have that gift, want they, they, they get empowered by doing that. But we all have a different gift. Now, where we have to be careful is that, and you'll see this, and I'm going to get into, Paul gets into this parenthetical thought with verse 8 through um, 10. But in verse 11, he gets into the I, what I've described, and it's not unique to me. I heard it from someone else. I don't know where it originated. Well, we call it the fivefold ministry. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. And you will see this, and I've seen this through, wow, what, 32 years of ministry. Um, if someone is an apostle, and there are modern-day apostles, now they're not apostles on the same class as the apostles that wrote scripture or the 12 apostles, but there were the book of Acts lists dozens and dozens of people that were called apostles and basically the gift of an apostle. Well, the best description I have is a, a guy that I knew years ago. I'm going back to uh, early eighties that um, he was an apostle to a section of Mexico and when he got out of Bible school, he moved his family down to this little town, um, Guzman, Ciudad Guzman. And I don't even remember exactly where it is in Mexico now. But he moved his family down there. He had enough support to, to help him survive. And he played a guitar. And he went out on this little town and he would, uh, on market days specifically, he would go set up on a corner start playing his guitar and gather up a crowd of people, sing a few praise and worship songs, and then teach about a five to a 10 minute salvation message. And he did that for weeks and weeks and weeks until he got a few people saved. They actually had an anointing on his ministry and people would get saved. And the first few that got saved, he found one, he kept doing that until he got someone saved that had a house where he could start a Bible study. And so he started a Bible study in their house. And out of that grew a church. And as soon as that church got, I, th I think, 20 to 30 members, they went and rented a little building. And he took one of the, he prayed over it. He took one of the members that he had and he said, okay, I'm going to train you to be the pastor. And he started training them to be the pastor. And then he would go on market day to another city. And when I met him, he had done this, he had repeated that process six, eight, ten times and had started that many churches and he was the apostle to those churches. He helped all of the, every one of them. He, once he got it started and got it self-sufficient, he'd appoint a pastor and he would train that pastor and he, he trained that group of pastors and, and it wasn't like he was setting up a cult he got them training, he brought in materials for them, brought in people to teach them, to help him. But he had an, a ministry 
of starting churches. That's what apostles do. And then we have the prophet, um, the evangelist, the pastor, the teacher. And, and what I've seen, though, is when you have that gift, and in particular you will see this, if a, 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 an evangelist comes into your church, the evangelist will teach. And the most important thing in the entire body of Christ is to evangelize. And if you have a, a teacher come through and they teach, the most important thing in the entire body of Christ is to set up Bible studies so people can learn the Bible. And if, if, you, if you have a pastor, a pastor wants to set up groups to help nourish and, and, and feed the flock and minister to one another. And that's their primary focus because that's their gift. Where we, we get into trouble is when we take our gift and think this is how everybody should operate the same way God's given us a gift to operate we're one part, and we need to allow people to express their gift in the way that God's directed them to express their gift. It's not an exclusive thing. There isn't just a way to do it. There, each gift, because it says according to the measure of Christ's gift, everybody has a little bit different gift, and everybody has a different measure of that gift. I've, I hear people all the time criticize mega churches. Um, I, I can't even think of one. I mean, Joel Osteen comes to mind. How do you go to a church that has 30,000, 40,000 members? You, you, that, that's not a church. Well, 30 or 40,000 people would disagree with you. Obviously, they're getting fed. Now, I do know part of the slam on, on, on most mega churches is people will say, well, you can go and get lost in the crowd. And if that's your intention, that's quite possible you can do that. You can just go hear a sermon and never be required to do anything. That's, you know, take advantage of all of the social things that a big church can provide. Yes. But you can also do that in a small church. I know people in churches of 40 or 50, you know, they show up on Sunday morning, they hear the sermon, they throw $5 in the, in the offering plate, and they leave and you never see them. They, they, they just come. That's where they are. Not criticizing that, but, but that, that position you can do it in a big church or a small church. I will tell you, though, this measure of Christ's gift, if you took me and threw me and put me in charge of a, of a church of 40,000, I could grow that church from 40,000 to 40 pretty quick because I don't have the, that kind of a, a grace gift to pastor a church of 40,000. Now, everybody has their own gift. Everybody has their own measure. What we need, and, and Paul says this later on, he says, when you compare yourselves among yourselves, you err. You're, let's just quit doing that. I, I've, I've said for years, there are, when you compare yourself, there are only three possible outcomes when you compare yourself in any part of your life with someone else. You are, are going to not measure up to the part of their life that you're seeing. Uh, 
which is always dangerous because you really don't know. You just see the outward appearance. You don't know what it's really like. But even if you just compare it to the outward appearance, you're either not going to measure up or you're going to be tempted to be condemned because you're not as good as so-and-so saint. Or you're going to look at them and you're going to say, wow, I'm really a lot stronger than they are. Then you're going to be tempted to go off into pride. Or you're going to be, say, well, we're about on par. And then you're tempted to complacency. None, none of those three is accurate. Forget about what someone else is doing. Quit comparing yourself to them. Compare yourself to the gift that God's given you. How am I fulfilling my gift? How am I conforming my life to what Christ has set before me? That's my measuring stick. And, and be honest with you, I will never, I will never attain to the perfection of that. That's, that's why Paul says, I continually press onward. I forget those things behind and I press towards that high calling that's set before me. It's, if I've said it, if you've got a heartbeat, you haven't arrived yet. You need to keep pressing upward. Well, we do that and, and the paradox of that is we strive to do better, but then we also have to relax and realize we've already arrived. There's a balance in that. Amen. And then the, the parenthetical thought, and I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to spend a long time because this, is, this gets into a lot of stuff that, boy, you can you get into a lot of, of controversy with these verses. Verse 8, he says, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. And factually, verse 9 and 10 are in parentheses, um, he says, now this he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? Now that statement right there, there's probably been more major wars. I'm not talking about minor theological wars, major theological wars fought over that statement. And it goes anywhere from, well, being descending into the lower parts of the earth means he was put in the grave to... Descending in the lower parts of the earth means that he went to hell and was in torment for the time that from the time that he gave up the ghost on Calvary to God resurrected him to anything in between. And all of those arguments have some merit. Everybody has a different opinion. And when we get to heaven, if it's still important to us, we can ask God and he'll tell us what was the fact. But it does say, and, and I don't believe that, that it just means that, he, that Jesus just was placed in the grave. I believe there is more to the, the, the death of, of Christ than just that his body went into the grave and he went to heaven because it says in, in verse 10, he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. But backing up into verse 8, it says when he made that ascension, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. That is a reference back to Psalm 68, 18, the, the, the psalmist basically said that 
um, the conquering king gave gifts to men, where the difference is that Jesus, as our king, he wasn't conquering us, but he descended, and I believe he descended into the actual hell, but he went in there to defeat the devil and to defeat the devil's kingdom. Now, part of the reason that I, I, I believe that, it, I, I believe that it's, it's describing his, in his death and his burial an entrance into hell, that that entrance was to conquer hell. But he entered into what, what the Bible describes as Abraham's bosom. In Luke 23, verse, 40, verse 42 and 43, when Jesus was on the cross, the, the two thieves, he had two thieves on, or a thief on either side of him. One of the thieves criticized him and said, he's just here because he deserves to be here just like we are. The other thief rebuked that guy and said, no, can you not tell that this is an innocent man? And then in verse 42, <coughs> excuse me, he turned to Jesus and he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He literally, at that moment, put his trust in Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus answered him and said, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, a lot of people will, will take that and say, Well, that paradise is spoken of in, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. This is at the, the, the Jesus speaking to the church at Ephesus. In verse 7, he says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Well, if you remember, the tree of life was in the midst of Eden. So this is a reference back to the Garden of Eden as a type of this paradise. But when you look at this, the Greek word here, this word came from Babylon. It's a, it's a Babylonian word in its origin. And it, originally this word was used to describe these huge gardens of the kings in Babylon, in Babylonia. The, that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world were the gardens of Babylon. They, that's where this word first came into existence and the Jews borrowed it from Babylon to describe this paradise. And it's describing this idyllic place. But here's the problem. In Revelation, it's talking about Jesus, if you are an overcomer, which means basically you are born again, I will give you to eat of the tree of life that's in paradise. But that is written post-resurrection. What about pre-resurrection? What about the Old Testament saints that believed in and had faith in the coming Messiah, but their, their sins were covered by their faith in the, in, in the Messiah, but they literally were not recreated because they couldn't be recreated because Jesus hadn't gone and conquered death and hell and taken 
all of the authority that the devil stole in Adam, he hadn't taken all that back yet. Well, that's where this, this teaching of Abraham's bosom comes in. Abraham's bosom, I believe this, and, the, and this doctrine didn't origi originate with me, but Abraham's bosom, we see it in, in the Gospels, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus was a beggar who laid at this rich man's gate, and they both died about the same time. And the rich man was in hell in torment. Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, not in torment. So you have a picture of the believer and the unbeliever. And it says that, that Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom, which I believe was a upper section of hell because they were captive. They could not roam the earth. Once a human being dies and their spirit leaves their body, they cannot exist on the earth. Now, we do have things that people call ghosts. They're evil spirits. They're, they're demons. Um, but they're not former human beings. They're not, they're not people that I just this afternoon I had something on. I fell asleep, took a nap. When I woke up, the the movie The Sixth Sense was on, and and Haley Joe Osmond's character was saying, it was at that scene where he tells Bruce Willis, his psychologist, that I see dead people all the time, but they don't know that they're dead. Well, it doesn't matter whether you know you're dead or not know you're dead. When you die, you are removed from the planet. You are either removed to hell or you're removed to heaven, which are both temporary abodes, and you're confined there. But when you are confined to hell before Jesus resurrected, if you were a believer, you weren't in torment, but you were in this garden. It was pleasant. Now, when Jesus died, he went to one of two places, depending on what your theological bent is. He either went into paradise and preached to them saying, I am the Messiah that you all were were um, believing in and it's time for you to come home because in the spirit there's no time here on earth there was three you know three days and three nights passed in the spirit that happens in the blink of an eye or there is a theological position that when Jesus died he went in and paid the spiritual price for our sins which was mean for those three days and three nights, he was tormented for our sins. And when the price was paid for our sins, then he was recreated in the midst of hell, in the midst of that torment. Either way, at the point where our, our sins were forgiven, whether it ended at the death of the cross or it ended being tormented in hell, whichever you, you subscribe to. When that price was paid, he went in. He did go into the lower parts of hell. And the, the picture is the, of a Roman emperor who, when he ca captures a king, they cut their thumbs off so they can never hold a sword. They cut their big toes off so they can never run or, or push off with any effectiveness so it, they cannot fight anymore. They clamp an iron 
band around their neck with a chain on it and they drag them through the city of Rome. And they're either kept captive in the, the king's palace so they can drag them out every once in a while and say, look, see this guy, he was a king in this country and he's conquered now. Or they put him to death as a public spectacle and say, this is what happens to everybody that opposes us. Jesus went into hell and conquered hell. And he led captivity captive. He led, he made a show, the Bible says he made a show openly of the devil. He went in and said, this creature who was created, who thought he could ascend his throne above my throne, I've come to end his reign on earth right now. I'm taking back all of the authority and he conquered death and hell, took the keys of hell and death. And Jesus literally rules hell and death now. Not that he is in hell, but he has authority in hell. And then he took all of the Old Testament saints. And when it says that he led captivity captive, those are the captives that he led into heaven then. They came from Abraham's bosom and he presented them to the father and said, these are the believers under the old covenant that believed in me. And he ascended to the right hand of the father. Now, did that happen? Did all of that happen before Jesus came back and got his body or did he get his body and then? I don't know. The Bible's not real clear on that. But it is clear that he did go into hell. In fact, Acts 2, um, verse 30 through 33, well, it's a quote of, of Psalm 1610. You will not leave my soul in Sheol, Psalm the psalmist said, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Acts 2.30 says, therefore being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, this is speaking of David, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in hell, nor did his flesh see corruption. So his, Jesus did go into hell, but I believe he went in as a conqueror, not, um, and, and part of that is, I forget where it is, 1 John, where it says that, that no man speaking of the spirit and, um, can say that Jesus was accursed. I don't believe Jesus bore the curse for us, but I believe that all happened at the cross. But he did go into and, and conquer hell and conquer death. And then as he came up, he also gave us grace. He poured out grace. That's part of the reason that he sent the Holy Spirit was to inform us and to, to distribute this grace. Um, and he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. He gives a different type of list. He said, God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets. Then he mentions teachers. He never mentions pastors and evangelists, but he said after that, miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and varieties of tongues. I believe that the miracles and gifts of healings properly go with the role of an evangelist. Helps and administrations goes with um, 
pastors and tongues goes with both of them because God will use the, the, the gift of tongues um, in, in both settings. But it's, it's the whole work here, he sums it up in verse 12. He did all of this for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. All of the grace that he's poured out, all of the gifts that he poured out, only for one reason, one reason only. That's to equip the individual members in the body of Christ. Excuse me. To equip the individual members in the body of Christ to do the work of the ministry. One of the tragedies, and this started from the Roman church primarily, um, and the, the, the Eastern Orthodox Church did the same thing. It's not just Rome. But once, once the church became codified and structured and there became an apparatus, they started installing or installing, excuse me, the professional ministry. And suddenly, the church members don't have the work of the ministry. It's the work of the pastor or the priest, the evangelist, the, pa the, the, the apostle, the prophet. Although for most modern churches, there are only two gifts, and that, or three, the pastor, the evangelist, and the teacher. Most churches don't even recognize prophets or apostles anymore. But it's their job to do the work of the ministry. And that's why... Most pastors get burned out, want to quit after a few years. Life of a pastor is, is almost as short as the life of public school teachers. I think the career right now, uh, typical career of a, of a um, public school teacher is five years. Five-year career. And that's an average when you, you've got people out there with 30, 35, 40-year careers that really are called to teach. So most people that go into teaching, they're, they're one or two years, maybe three or four years, and then they can't take it anymore, and they go do something else the rest of their life. Pastors do the same thing. Most pastors, they pastor a few years. I'm done. I can't take it. The pressure's too much. It's because they fall into the trap of the professional ministry instead of equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry. doesn't mean that being in the ministry is easy. But it becomes easier when you realize that you have a grace, a gift, and you learn to let your gift do the work. And if you don't have a gift to go in a certain area, you don't do that area. That is a tough one. Because anytime, if you're a minister, you see a church and do a program that works immediately. Well, if it worked for them, it'll work for me. Their church grew because of this. Our church will grow because of this. Well, maybe not. Maybe it worked because that was God's gift for that church and that pastor. And you need to find the gift for your church and your pastor. But that requires a lot of prayer, a lot of waiting on the Lord, and a lot of listening, which you can describe those things with that nasty, filthy curse word, W-O-R-K. And it's, it's, it's really hard sometimes 
just to hold steady and pray till you know that you know that you know that you know that God's told you to do something. And then run with that. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.